Chapter Seventeen of The Heron Nest by W. Burt Foster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Seventeen, Clearing the Way. Billy was not going down to the village to see Mister Bigup, the livery stable man and grain dealer, until the following Monday morning. They all had a good deal to do about the house and in shoveling the drifts away from the buildings a path had to be made to the spring and they uncovered it each morning jack had to chop out the ice before they could get water for the use of the family i'll have pipes laid here and the well properly covered in before i'm six months older if i don't do another thing declared billy to his brother it is bad enough to ask women to live and work under such disadvantages as our folk have to put up with there are two inalienable rights of the female sex that they should demand before they demand the right of suffrage what are they queried jack grinning they should demand plenty of seasoned wood in the kitchen and a water supply right at hand the cause of women's rights will never spread to any appreciable extent among country folk until those two planks are spiked firmly in the platform of the party the crust on the snow was so thick by monday that billy found little difficulty in walking down to medway and all the way his heart sang a thanksgiving hymn if an inaudible one because he could travel so much better than he had been able to a year before mr tom bigup was glad to see him and keeping Elias Short's advice in mind, Billy spent some time in bargaining, a pastime in which the grain dealer thoroughly enjoyed himself. In the end, Billy obtained it an agreement that was very fair indeed. Mr. Bigup was to pay the young fellow three dollars per week in cash, and Billy was to be at the store only four days in the week, and then only from mid-forenoon till evening. In addition, when the roads were cleared, Jack was to draw all the stable scrapings he had time to cart when Mr. Bigup's team was not in use. At least two loads a week were to be the herons, and as Bigup was a just, if a sharp man, Billy knew that his brother would be able to get a good deal of fertilizer against the next season, and just the kind of enrichment Billy wanted for his garden. When they moved, Lias Short had carted the heron's compost heap to their new home, and some distance from the house, Billy proposed to have a huge pile where this already decayed mass of vegetable matter and the stable scrapings could be thoroughly mixed and turned over and put into condition for the next season. No commercial fertilizer is as rich and humus as a rightly prepared compost heap and the commercial fertilizer was altogether too expensive for the herons. With the little Billy made and the returns from Aunt Nanny's work, the family would be able to obtain food during the winter, but there would be nothing with which to buy seed, and the grade of onion seed alone that Billy wanted to purchase was four dollars a pound. Pearl Mary's pullets had not stopped laying, and she had customers in the village that, after Christmas, paid her as high as five cents apiece for the few she could bring them. But the egg money only paid for the supplies she had to buy for the hens and chicks. 
Billy told her not to expect any surplus from the hen industry for two years at least. Meanwhile, Jack and Mr. Heron were as busy as though there had been no snow at all on the ground. It is the farmer who works twelve months in the year, not nine months, who is successful. Winter is the season to prepare for the real work of the year, and if a man is wise, he will not waste the precious three months or more when the land cannot be worked in our climate. In the first place, the log and brush shelter the boys had made was an excellent place in which to saw and split wood. In building the chimney of the bungalow, Billy had built in a proper flue and had promised his grandmother that, out of the first money he could spare, he would buy a range for the kitchen. Jack and his father would have time to prepare all the wood that could possibly be needed for use during the summer. Jack bore his share of the responsibility of their needs, too. He was much awake as Billy to the necessity of turning every opportunity to account. A light snow fell and covered the hard crust of the drifts that filled every hollow in the mountainside. Not until then did Jack realize how many small creatures there were about the woods and wild places in the winter. Of course, the squirrels each had his particular hoarded provision. But the foxes tracked near the henhouse. There were plenty of wild birds to come and chatter over the crumbs, Pearl Mary threw outside the bungalow door, and farther from the house were innumerable rabbit trails. The rabbits were pretty creatures, but they were fair prey for a hungry boy, too. Mr. Short had some old traps, and he lent them to Jack, who cleaned and oiled them, and set them carefully where the bunnies passed. Almost every morning, unless it stormed, Jack got a brace, and although the womenfolk refused to eat them, Billy exchanged them at the market in the village for the flesh of other animals, which, in life, had been quite as pretty as the bunnies. Lias Short declared the rabbits often became a veritable plague in the neighborhood. On his visit to Mr. Short, when he borrowed the traps, Jack had noted the condition of the creek which ran through the entire width of the heron's farm, and which on the previous winter had scarcely frozen. But the heavy snow at Christmas had blocked the stream for a time, and upon a level piece of meadow the water had backed up, and was frozen into a pond of some half-acre in extent. This piece of land, he remembered, had been a bit swampy in summer, too. There were doubtless springs here, which partly fed the pond. The ice was in good condition, and Jack wished that they might store some for their own use next year. He and Billy had the plans and description for the building of a hillside ice house, and sometime they hoped to excavate one behind the bungalow, but not this winter. The idea set Jack's mind to work, however, and he finally evolved a scheme that he put into execution without taking Billy into his confidence. He knew that his brother was vastly troubled about the money needed for seeds and this opportunity which offered itself might supply the necessary funds. The Van Coe house and stables had been covered in before the snow came, and the carpenters and plasterers, and later the decorators, were busy on the job. The owner and his daughter, Mr. Short, 
told Jack, were frequently out in their sleigh to see what progress was being made, and Jack made it a point to be on the spot one afternoon when Mr. Van Coe was there. Miss Van Coe, bundled in her furs, welcomed him warmly. She admired Jack's manliness, his good looks, his physique, even his apologetic smile. Van Coe himself was of that type of banker who judges every soul he meets by a monetary standard, one of those financial magnates who are as obsequious as a crossing-sweeper to men with more money, or more influence, than they themselves possess, but who pass their honest porters and faithful clerks three hundred days in the year without even a decent good morning. This individual would have given Jack little attention had the young fellow first approached him with his scheme, but Jack was wise enough to interest Miss Van Coe first. While the young lady was asking about Pearl Mary and the family in general, and gushing a lot of airy nothings that Jack realized were intended to be friendly and kind, the big fellow managed to get in an introductory word regarding his great idea. He interested Miss Van Coe at once, and she grew enthusiastic and called her father to listen. "'Father, do you realize how very foolish we are?' she cried. "'I insisted upon your having a refrigerator built into the pantry back of the kitchen, with a way of putting in the ice from the porch. And all the time neither of us inquired how we were to get an ice supply here.' "'Isn't there ice sold in the village?' asked her father. "'Mr. Heron tells me that nobody retails ice there. "'None of the city companies deliver ice out this way. "'Those who use it in the village get their supply from the mill pond "'and house it down there. "'It is a close corporation, and their house is small, "'and they never have too much. "'Sometimes the butcher has to buy a carload of ice.' on his own responsibility. They run so short. Mr. Darnell cut his own ice and stacked it behind the stables. Mr. Heron says, in a temporary building that burned when the others were destroyed. Ha! ejaculated her father. Then we can do the same. But there is no ice privilege on our place, laughed his daughter. You know, you would not buy the higher acres from Mr. Mendon and they belong to mr heron and his brother now mr heron was just telling me that they have plenty of ice up there ready to cut mr van coe seeing that it might be for his interest to deal with mr heron favored jack with rather a sour smile where can i stack ice louise we certainly cannot excavate for the foundations of an ice house at this time of year said the gentleman. Jack had every line of the plan perfectly drawn in his own mind. He respectfully suggested that Mr. Van Coe use the cellar under the old tool house, where the herons had lived, for an ice house during the first summer of the new owner's occupancy of the place. He even showed the gentleman how the carpenters then at work on the house and stable could, at a small expense, build a rough inner partition in the cemented cellar, and between that plank partition and the outer masonry the space could be filled with swamp hay to be purchased of Mr. Short. The result would be a very good substitute for an ice house, 
and would afford storage for several tons of the commodity, enough to last the Van Coes through the summer. And I'll fill the cellar for you with good ice, at least six inches thick, for thirty dollars, was the earnest Jack's concluding remark. Mr. Van Coe took time to think the matter over and make inquiries for himself. He was a cautious man, but within the week he wrote Jack that he accepted his offer, and that, by the time he could deliver the ice, the seller would be made ready to receive it. Jack immediately engaged Mr. Short's team and his stone drag from the butcher at the village, who owned the implements. The young fellow borrowed a saw, a hand ice plow, and pikes. The local ice company was not ready yet to harvest the mill pond ice. They wanted eight-inch cakes and expected to get that thickness in February. Jack and his father cut the ice and transported it to the Van Coe place in less than another week. Mr. Short got five dollars for the use of his team, and Jack put twenty-five in his brother's hand before Billy even suspected what was being done during his absence in the village, where he struggled from Monday morning to Friday night with Big Up's books. This windfall delighted everybody, and Billy sent at once for the bulk of the seeds they expected to use during the coming season. However, unless the stumps and roots could be got out of the ground, how were the herons to plant a garden in the cove on the mountain side? They could not dig the stumps out while the ground was frozen and the snow was heaped upon it, and it, in some cases, drifted over the stumps themselves. Such a method would have been most toilsome, too, and would have taken Jack and his father perhaps a day or two on each stump. It was then that Billy's mysterious operations on the stumpage on the southern slope of the cove was explained. The first snags that he had bored into and doctored had now been drinking kerosene for three or four months. Whenever he had had time during the winter, he had operated on other stumps until he had prepared those on more than half of the open ground in the cove. But he began proving his scheme valuable on those stumps that he had first tackled near the bungalow. On a certain sunshiny, quiet January day, he invited the whole family to see the first stump touched off. Pearl Mary, Granny, and Aunt Nanny were inclined to stand afar off and hold their hands over their ears, believing that the stumps must go off with some kind of a report. Billy pulled the plugs in the first one, stuffed an oil-soaked wick of cotton waste in each aperture, and touched them off. They burned rather slowly at first, and with a good deal of smoke, but when the oily wood fairly got afire, intense flames shot three or four feet into the air, and the wood was rapidly consumed. The fire melted the snow for yards about, and took the frost out of the ground as well. Not only did the entire stump above ground burn, but the fire smoldered down through the big roots, which had become saturated with the oil, so that in forty-eight hours Jack went over the site of the stump with a grubbing hoe, and found most of the roots destroyed, and worked the soil and ashes up fine for a depth of twelve or eighteen inches, 
before the heat got out and the frost got in again. And this ash will be just like gold in the soil for us next season, crowed the big fellow, wielding his heavy implement like a giant. Oh, Billy, you certainly take the prize. I've a good memory for what I read, that's all, retorted his modest brother. The first stump having been incinerated so nicely, they set several others off on each pleasant day. And meanwhile, Billy kept to work on more of them, boring the holes, filling them again and again with oil, until the fiber of the wood was well saturated. Such as did not burn cleanly, Jack and his father knocked to pieces, grubbing out the roots as best they could. It was a mighty task, but the results amply repaid their efforts. Square yards of the side hill were cleared in this manner every day, and as the accumulated snow, too, fled before the intense heat of the burning stumpage, the black earth was revealed, and the boys were delighted to see how free from trash the growing plot of tillable land appeared. The smoke of their fires rose daily until a storm intervened, and after Jack's ice harvest was concluded, he and their father were engaged entirely in the work until the middle of February. Then the boys set up their hotbed. Jack drew the green manure for it from the village as he had the previous season, and their early seeds were confided to the bed. They had planned to raise much the same crop as the year previous. Only later, Billy proposed to try two varieties of celery, which, he was sure, would do well in the moist patch near the lower spring. There was a little lull, and Jack was able to work for nearly two weeks steadily for Mr. Short, as that good neighbor wanted to rebuild his wife's buttery and make some other repairs to his house. This enabled the herons to reduce the bill they owed Short nearly one quarter, and it encouraged Billy to agree to have Mr. Short bring up his heavy plow and double harrow, and to go over the side hill that had been completely cleared of stumps and roots as soon as the frost was out of the ground. To pay for this favor, and so as not to add to Mr. Short's bill, Jack helped the farmer with his own plowing when the time came, and saved Lias the expense of hiring a man until April. Billy and his father planted the first peas and the onion sets quite as early as the year before. This slope to the south was a grateful piece of ground to work. It was ready for their purpose even before the snow had entirely disappeared from the fence corners and other sheltered places. During the winter, Pearl Mary had set her hens when they had become broody, but she sold the eggs they laid and purchased well-bred stock for her settings, and so brought off the maximum percentage of healthy chicks. Up to March 1st she had hatched 67 chicks out of five settings of eggs. Beside the 19 December chicks, they had brought with them from Rack and Ruin Villa. Out of the 86, she lost, in various ways, 27. On the 1st of March, Jack killed and dressed for her 10 broilers, which sold for 32 cents per pound, amounting to an even $4. Soon after the beginning of March, Mr. Short's hens became broody again, and the young girl borrowed half a dozen motherly biddies, and Billy spent eight dollars for a hundred guaranteed eggs from the dealer who had previously supplied them. 
Pearl Mary's method of feeding and caring for her laying fowls kept them working as egg producers until late in the spring, and almost all the spring hatch was accomplished by borrowed biddies. Jack built six chicken runs like the one they had used the season before, and soon there were more than a hundred lively chicks cheeping in them. Every week or two, they killed a few broilers, selling them for almost enough to pay for the chicken food, which had to be bought. Billy's job of keeping books for the grain dealer came to an end about now, for with the first breath of spring, Bob Bigup returned from the south. The work in the cove on the mountainside was well under way. Quite an acre had been planted, mostly to onions, and then the family found itself in one of those periodic lean times when famine actually stared them in the face, and when the general exchequer was totally empty. End of chapter 17